This is Oddballers, and I'm your host, Elizabeth Wires, and I am in search of everything odd and bizarre. So join me as I embark on this journey onto the B-side of life to find the oddities of the world. From witch hunts to trending skincare routines, schizophrenic writers and blood-sucking demons turned sexy pop culture icons. This is Oddballers. Welcome back to another episode of Oddballers. Today we have another great episode for you as we continue this month's topic on vampirism. We will discuss vampires as a subgenre in literature and cinematography and how they have gone from folklore and myths to a modern day pulp culture movement. We are once again joined today by my friend and recent University of Iowa graduate, Abby Faust. Thank you for having me again. I'm glad that you think, you know, my input is um, worthy of a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I just think, you know, you have such great insight about things and why not? Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. Are you super excited to be on here talking about vampires again? Oh, for sure. I, I think I've said this in the podcast before, but I read a lot of these things for classes and when I have, I'm like, oh my God, like I kind of hate this. But then now when you kind of sit, back and you think about it, there is much more than meets the eye. Exactly. So if you haven't listened to our previous episode about the vampire legacy and folklore, please go listen to that right now. It gives a great framework to everything that we're going to be talking about today, because today we are finally going to get into talking about this very niche subgenre, vampire literature. So first, let's just start with the basics. What is vampire literature? Well, That is simple. It is simply a spectrum of literary work that is concerned with the subject of vampires. It is books based on vampires. Yeah. I mean, pretty, pretty simple definition. Pretty simple. We have the epic poem, the Dior in 1813 by Lord Byron. I have a special place in my asshole for this man because (laughs) I very much dislike him. (laughs) Because the next one on my list is The Vampire by John William Padori, which was published in 1819, and we will get to that. But Lord Byron plagiarized this book. Um, did like he go to jail? Did any repercussions happen? We will get to that. Oh, okay. I'm excited. I want to see this man rot. Another one is The Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire in 1847. Not to be mistaken with Barney, the purple dinosaur. And we just want to make sure the distinctions are very clear. Yes, strings don't cross. We also have Sheridan Lafran's Carmilla. That I love, Carmilla. Love. And that was published in 1872. And of course, Bram Stoker's Dracula, published in 1897. There are also more modern day works like Twilight and The Vampire Diaries, Vampire Academy, Salem's Lot by Stephen King, and of course, iconic authors like Anne Rice and her book series, Interview with a Vampire. 
Vampires even make cameos <laughs> in book series like Harry Potter and A Discovery of Witches, and they surround young adult literature and even bleed, no pun intended, even bleed into adult literature, particularly influence romantic genres as well. Vampire literature is an increasing genre, and vampires have wandered through these stories and folklores for millennia. And history has really created a legacy for them to survive through the years. And with vampire literature, I would say they are. But there are definitely characteristics of vampires that have changed and grown through exploration of this genres. And right now I want to just open it up and just kind of see, Abby, what do you think are some basic characteristics for these genres? I would say surface level, like surface level when you kind of read one of the first things one of the first images that starts and kind of ends these pieces of literature are the image of blood like that is extremely present like you can't miss that and i feel like it wouldn't be vampire literature without the inclusion of blood as we mentioned in the last episode again if you have not seen that please go over there and do that right now thank you right very much. right now um but if you have you remember us very at the very beginning of that episode talking about blood and how it is very sacred and how it is something really really interesting and yeah that is definitely a surface level characteristic of blood because they drink blood they feed on blood i have a couple of other things written down they are demonic usually they have dark spirits also very sexualized which we'll discuss later but these characteristics change, you know, as this literature changes as well. I have this book. Have you seen this book before? I have not, but uh, for all th those who cannot see it, it is a thick book, let me tell you. Yeah, it's a big one. We will post this on our Instagram. It is called A Dictionary of Superstitions. It is edited by Iona Opie and Moira Tatum. And... It is a Barnes and Noble book, I believe, but it is a very large dictionary of everything superstitious. And I believe I have a page marked about blood to specifically talk about that. There is a couple of different things. There's blood shedding at a funeral. Blood shedding brings success. And that's really all they have of blood, but they do have a very thick amount of yeah. page space for just this aspect of blood and why it's a superstition. So even then we see this as some kind of sacred superstition that mm -hmm. people hold. Mm -hmm. What other characteristics do we think of when we think of vampires on a surface level? I mean, I guess in terms of physical description, um, I kind of think of like pale skin. We've mentioned that before. Long fangs, you know, they're afraid of the light. They're kind of repelled by the light. They thrive in darkness. I think that another one that I just found again in my my book here is coffins. Oh yeah, that's another one. Definitely coffins. Here's one of coffin lid undone. And it's a very interesting how they have this worded, but when the devil came in at one hole to catch her, she might slip out the other. So you leave a coffin undone so that if the devil comes in you can run out the other which is really interesting because of this aspect of coffins now mm -hmm. in popular culture we also have lots of animals mm -hmm. so i think the bat yes oh for sure the bat is kind of what they're known to kind of transform into and out of there's also the vampire bat mm -hmm. which is a real animal that's crazy 
And I think going back to the coffin, the crucifix is another giant one. Similar to light, it is supposedly used to kind of repel these demonic creatures. Another animal would definitely be a wolf. Yep. Mm -hmm. But I think along the lines of a crucifix in kind of things that they're afraid of, garlic. Mm Mm-hmm. Got the wooden stake through the heart. Wooden stakes, good. Uh, mirrors. Yeah, that's an interesting. That that one I still am curious about and honestly can't give like a straightforward definition, you know? Um, in this book, it does say mirrors as in covered in the presence of death. I know there have been some like murders, especially like the Velisca Axe Murder House, mm-hmm. in which the mirrors were covered. Mm-hmm. So they cover those mirrors and it's said that the murderer did this actually, but the mirrors were then covered at the site of death. I know that vampires cannot see the reflection in certain yes, yeah, uh, stories. We also see this idea of the raven being another oh, animal, yeah, kind of like the ra- crow, kind of like the the crow, the, the raven. raven, like the dark featured bird. Yeah, and it's interesting because wolves. Ravens, crows, and bats are all seen as omens. Yeah, like you wonder why those animals. Like, why not a giraffe? Why not a dolphin? Yeah. You know, like why those cat, uh, cats are too. Mm-hmm. Like the, the black cat. Yeah, it's also really interesting that those are some of the creatures that are in, I don't want to say witchology, because yeah. that's not really what it's called, but when you're studying witches, they're used in their, as their familiars, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting idea as well. Something that I did find that is prevalent in the Vampire Diaries book specifically is uh, Vervain. And I didn't know if this was a real thing or not, but (laughs) there are powers of Vervain. And it was said to have grown at the base of the cross in which Christ was crucified on. Mm. So this is like the plant that was growing there. It's also called Devil's Bane. So it's supposed to protect from evil in some way. So I think just very surface level, these are characteristics that we see. In all of vampire literature. Like you see all the things we've mentioned, at least, you know, one or two sprinkled throughout, if not more. And even, yeah, if not more. And these characteristics are definitely continuing to change. And they are changing more and more in literature and especially more and more today. But let's kind of go back. I also have this book here with me. This one's even thicker, friends. (laughs) Um. It's actually, this one is H.P. Lovecraft selects classic horror stories. But inside, we're not going to talk about that book. We're going to talk about The Vampire by John William Poldori. And kudos to this man, because I really, really enjoy this story. It was published in 1819 under the name Lord Byron, who is a real person. And... It was actually written by John William Podori in the same contest that produced Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So they were all together and they were all at a summer house in Switzerland that was owned by Lord Byron. And they had a writing contest to see who could write the scariest ghost story. A lot of people know the story. It's very, very famous. Um, But this writing contest inspired the creation of both Frankenstein and the vampire. But Lord Byron was like, John, my friend, that's a terrible story. Vampires are overrated. They're horrible. They're a folklore myth. They're not real. They don't belong in literature. So he throws it away. 1819 rolls around and John William Podori is browsing the 
a cold section of a bookstore. I don't really know, but <laughs> he, you know, finds his book, his book, the vampire published uh -huh. under the name Lord Byron, Amazing. Lord Byron plagiarized this book and it was not changed until after both of their deaths. That's depressing. You work so hard and then you never get credit. It is. And the plot overview, just really quick, is there's a traveler named Aubrey. He meets Lord Ruthven, which is this creepy man who is very, very wealthy and also a lord. Aubrey travels then to Greece, where he hears stories of creatures ripping the throats out of women and murdering them, and their blood is gone. In Greece, he runs into Lord Ruthven, does not connect the dots quite yet. Lord Ruthven, on their travels, is shot by bandits and he dies. And on his deathbed, he tells Aubrey, swear to me an oath that you will not speak of my death for one year and one day. And of course, Aubrey's like, well, you're going to be dead. So I don't, <laughs> don't care. Matter. And so he swears the oath and Ruth then dies laughing. Ooh, that's a, that's a mental picture, man. It is. So Aubrey returns to find his sister, engaged so he returns to rome his sister is engaged he asks so who are you engaged to and this is maybe six months or so later i would guess and she shows him who she's engaged to and it is none other than lord ruthven oh no and so aubrey has this kind of psychotic break oh i, I can imagine and he has this like terrible psychotic break that forces him into an illness and he's like, I have to warn my sister, but I don't want to get killed. This person is alive again. So a year and a day comes by and he writes a letter to his sister. He's very ill because of this, this illness that has overcome him and sends this letter and then instantly dies. The letter never actually gets to his sister, although it is intercepted and it is read and people go to her house to find her dead the hand of a vampire throat ripped open and blood drained out and Lord Ruthven gone. So this is one of the stories that really propelled vampirism in literature. It's one of the very first stories that really had a vampire present in the plot of the story of something that is uh, seen as prose, which is really, really interesting. Another one that we see is Dracula. Dracula. I feel like this is could just be a personal opinion, but I feel like Dracula might be the most popular vampire novel. Like I would agree that Dracula is the most popular yeah. vampire. Yeah, for sure. Like, and we'll talk about the adaptations, but it's not like vampires are included in adaptations. It's like Dracula is included in yes. adaptations. So this was a novel published in 1897 by none other than Bram Stoker and definitely a huge, huge influence on vampires and literature. And before I read this book, it it is not what you think it is. At least when I read it and we've discussed it in classes, it's like not what you think when you think of Dracula. So it's written in kind of like an untraditional narrative, which I personally enjoyed. So you have these kind of stories being told through newspaper clippings, you got letters, diary entries, and it's told from multiple different characters because Bram Stoker wanted to make it, I guess, believable. Like there's a preface to the novel and he wants you to kind of believe this. And I 
I personally think that that's why he did the multiple narrative tactic. You know, you're not just hearing it from one character, you're hearing it from multiple people. So like it can't, they can't all be lying. I think that's kind of what he was going for when choosing to write it this way. So the book begins, you got a realtor, his name is Jonathan Harker. He's going to Transylvania to meet this dude who wants to purchase some land in England. This dude is Dracula. And on his way to Transylvania, people are, like, giving him crucifixes. They're like, you need to wear garlic around your neck. And he's like, man, like, I'm going to be okay. Like, this They is- don't even, like, walk up to the door with him. They're just like, yeah. you walk from here, my friend. Exactly. Peace be with you. And then they, they leave. And this guy's like, nah, like, superstition. He's more in the mind of science. He gets there. He arrives in a castle, meets Dracula, and is like, wow, this man is, this man is interesting. And during his stay, he kind of runs into some not-so-normal, activities. He meets these three vampiric women who try to seduce him. He realizes Dracula can't see himself in mirrors. He sees Dracula escape the castle at night. And Dracula is described as like a lizard escaping through his window. We see him disappear eventually through the letters of his fiancée, Mina. And this is the other subplot that I don't think people are kind of knowing about before they get into this, but um, it's between Mina and Lucy. Mina, as I mentioned, is Jonathan's fiance and Lucy is just kind of this like she's portrayed as this like innocent yet kind of forthcoming attractive young woman and she mysteriously gets some weird illness and these three men come to her rescue one is a doctor one is runs an insane asylum and the other is her fiance and they try to save her life from this weird illness they have no clue what you know is causing her but she's she's essentially dying and one of the interesting things referencing blood is that in this, they decide to do blood transfusions. They think that's going to save her. And they do it in like the time span, maybe like three hours. They do it way too fast. And they use three different men's blood. And blood types back then wasn't a thing. So theoretically, she would be dead. Um, she wasn't. Anyway, Lucy eventually dies. Um, she becomes a vampire and kills small children at night. And then the three men who tried to save her life in the beginning are like, we need, we need to save society and we need to not save her like we had tried to before we need to kill her and the only way that they can kill her is three separate ways like she's a powerful woman so you got the stake through the heart you got the decapitation and then you got the garlic through the mouth and in the end dracula after lucy's dead he's like i need i need somebody else to work to work for me so he tries to turn mina into a vampire as his last hope but that does not work and eventually he's killed at the end but there is kind of this like theory some people speculate that because the ending it, you, you'd have to read the, the ending to understand it. Some people claim that he doesn't actually die. Like, you don't actually see him die. You just hear kind of what happens. I do want to kind of mention something about the adaptations of Dracula. And there is an adaptation that's brand new, I think, of last year. And it is on Netflix, I believe. But it's a three... I don't know if it's like a mini-series or yeah. what it is. But it's like a three-episode movie mm-hmm. i would say and he doesn't die oh they like connections they twist the plot and i'm not trying to give anything away this is yeah. the first episode so don't <laughs> don't like, don't cry don't shit yourself they twist the plot and they make it more relevant there's time jumping so they do come into 2020 for a little oh, while okay, or i okay. guess 2019 yeah yeah there is gender roles that are changing Mm-hmm. That's a big so, part of this, which you don't see, like you don't expect. You also see Jonathan Harker and his escape from the castle in mm-hmm. Transylvania. It looks a lot different. And I don't yeah. want to give away too much because okay. it is 
a very new adaptation in itself. It's not your typical black and white, right? It's not that at all. And gender roles are switching. I don't want to give away too much, but I will say that I did a play in high school that was Dracula and I played Von Helsing and I'm all for gender roles. Abigail Von Helsing right here. There you go. But I will say that in this, there is a gender role switch for Von Helsing and Mm -hmm. I'm all here for it. She is a nun and she is a badass man. <laughs> I want to see it now. So I just wanted to kind of stick that out. And just briefly, let's go ahead and kind of discuss some adaptations of Dracula that are really interesting. Branching off of your idea of the animated film, um, one that I'm familiar with, and maybe it's sad that I'm familiar with it, um, but Hotel Transylvania. And there's actually a second one too. It was such a hit. And so although Dracula is kind of the main character in this, this, I guess, movie franchise, since there are multiple, kind of mixes the idea of kind of these monstrous creatures. Like you are saying, you got witches, you got Frankenstein, mummies. They kind of blend it all together. But instead of kind of a negative portrayal of sucking blood, it's a positive. You know, it's aimed towards younger children. Dracula has a daughter, then Dracula's daughter has a son, and in this they do, I guess, procreate. I think it's interesting that such quote-unquote scary horror genre is adapted into a animated film for children, so I think that's kind of a cool spin on that. And then another one that I'm familiar with, I took a film class my first year at Iowa, and it kind of looked at films from different cultures all across the world, and one that I particularly remember is one that's titled A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and it's considered the first Iranian vampire western, and it's actually narrated in Persian. But this film features a female Dracula, so to speak. We love that gender role We do, we do. I, I wanted to see it, and I did, and I was so extremely thrilled. She comes alive at night as well, but she only seduces horrible men. She doesn't go after the kind guys. She goes after the bad men who are targeting other women. Okay, so like the... Robin Hood murderer yeah, type. Yeah, exactly. You know, go from the rich and give to the, the poor. poor. She's killing the evil to, yeah, to make save the nice. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's such a cool idea. Um, and she does this through, I guess, seductive power. So she convinces them to come back to her apartment at night and then she kills them. And kind of the plot twist is that she, even though she's found so many horrible men to kill, she comes across this one man who she believes to be a good man. You know, she meets with him a few times and she realizes that he is truly a good man and she has to resist the urge to kill him. Ultimately, she does. But I thought, you know, obviously this is an interesting take as the woman is the one roaming the streets at night um, as a predator. She's not She's not the victim. I'm reversing these, I guess, traditional gender roles and also by her choosing to save the good man's life at the end, not the other way around. Like she is not a damsel in distress. She is saving this man. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially just the fact that they're still doing adaptations of Mm -hmm. Dracula. We see a lot of them in, you know, 1920s films that are black and white and very, very hokey. And I think one of those, it's not exactly Dracula, but Nosferatu, the 1922 mm -hmm. film, I think they knew that they were going to get sued for this. (laughs) They had to have. I think because it's very, very, very similar. But this also introduced the idea of light mm-hmm. being a fear factor because Dracula can walk in the daytime mm-hmm. and he walks about the neighborhood and is not really bothered by it. 
But there is that infamous scene where the sun rises and Nosferatu does disappear as if being attacked by the sun. There's also Twilight, which I- is a huge franchise. I have the book right here because... I wanted to prove to everybody that I owned the book. It's right here. I see it. I have never read this book. I have tried to read this book and it's nothing bad about the author. I have read other books Mm -hmm. by her. I just have never read this book, but they, you know, do not hurt when they go into the sun. Instead, they sparkle, which is really weird. They don't age. (laughs) They're immortal. Fire kills them. Wooden stakes. They have super strength and speed. Now this is interesting. Procreation is not impossible because as we see in the fourth book, Bella, who is a human, procreates with a vampire and has this sort of vampire half-breed child. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. This is a really interesting book, but it's just not for me, I guess. Um, They also have mind control in a way, I believe, just kind of, not necessarily mind control, but they can get into the mind and like read thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is definitely interesting. And we can kind of go back up to... The Vampire uh, by John William Pidori, uh, there's no specifics based on their appearance of any kind. Obviously, there's something immortal about them if Lord Ruthven is not dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is blood drinking because oh, yeah. of the throats being ripped open. And this is interesting. I'm not certain about the mind control, but my thought is when he dies, he's laughing. And this could either be one... He knows he's going to come back because he's immortal. True. Or two, he's controlling Aubrey's mind to make him see his death. Mm. And he doesn't really die. And he escapes it in that way. So I'm not really sure about the whole mind control in that aspect. I know characteristics of Dracula are pretty similar as well. Yeah, so one of them is that um, in this adaptation, vampires can't be seen in mirrors. So in the castle, that's kind of one of the main factors that Jonathan realizes and is like, oh no, something is off. Dracula is standing behind him in a mirror and he can't see him. Um, Another interesting one is that vampires can only enter a room if they have been invited. So when we talk about, I guess, the seduction powers, um, it's interesting because Lucy, the female that turns into a vampire, had to have invited Dracula in. So some people are kind of questioning her moral values if you're letting a strange man into your room alone at night. That's Um, a really good point. Yeah, which I, the first time I read it, I didn't catch that. And then the second time I did. And so that puts more into your brain. We've talked a little bit about, you know, vampires are repelled by garlic, crucifixes, but also the church wafers um, was interesting. They take like a bunch of those and try to kind of like seal the coffin door with it, which is yeah. a very interesting image. I did forget about that. I would assume because it's holy in some way, the holy water, the crucifixes, also that, but it's also interesting to notice that like, that's not the ways to kill them. The yeah. holy things are not what kills them, which is interesting I don't want to give away the ending of this Dracula show, but it's interesting to, at the very, very end, the last episode, Van Helsing and Dracula are talking. And again, a little bit of an unorthodox Van Helsing we have going on in more than one way, but they're talking and she's like, why are you afraid of the cross? Why can you not, you know, why are you afraid of this? And why do you not love the sun? In this adaptation, he does not like the The sun. sun. Okay. So, She's asking this to him and it's really interesting to know his answers because he does not know. Hmm. Dracula himself does not understand why he is afraid 
of the of the cross. Oh, the cross. <laughs> and so von Helsing is trying to figure it out, and she does. She figures it mm -hmm. out, and the ending of this is just mind blowing. I would encourage you all to go watch it because it is so phenomenal, especially if you love the way that things twist plots. Oh, yeah. I love the plot twisters, like not plot twist at the end of books, yeah. but the, the adaptations that just turn that plot around and make you think, oh my gosh, well, that could have happened instead. I love those. Yeah. I want to see that now. Actually, really bad now that you keep yeah. mentioning it. I'm just going to point out one last one. Um, that's something relatively new to vampirism is the fact that Dracula sleeps in a coffin and coffins are actually another prevalent image in this book. Dracula actually ships, I believe it's seven coffins to England. So you kind of are wondering why he's bringing these coffins and he's trying to populate England with this breed of vampire. Yeah, and also the idea of sleeping on a bed of his own earth and in mm -hmm. this coffin is significantly original to Dracula. Mm -hmm. You don't see that anywhere else. You see it now because Dracula has really kind of built this framework for yeah. us. But before that, Bram Stoker really had to be like, this is the own original thing because you know, you need a plot. You, yeah. need, you need these people to destroy the coffins in order exactly. to defeat him and move on. You also have written down in our notes, Abby, about the fear of women's oh, yes. sexuality expressed through the characterization of Lucy. And I think that's really interesting because you're in the Victorian time. Mm -hmm. And the Victorian time was infamous for sexual repression. Mm -hmm. That's like literally what they are known for. <laughs> and... But also, you know, they were doing it because they no, have like children. hundreds of children. Exactly. But it's just so interesting of the sexuality, like the sexual repression that was occurring and the lack of sexuality that everyone has. Mm -hmm. But yet we have a novel that is almost commenting on this. Oh, yeah. I, I, this is just in my own opinion and there are definitely differing opinions, but I personally think that you can read Dracula as a critique of this new woman because the only proper woman, she like, I guess she's like the brains of the operation, so to speak, but she's the one that is able, she like turns Dracula away and she has no, she has no power. The proper Victorian woman has no power. Yes, she's extremely smart. She's the one that comes up with a plan to defeat Dracula, but the men don't let her do it. The only one with actual power, like I guess would have to be like Lucy, even though she's given that power through Dracula and kind of letting she's given him. the power through a man. Exactly. Exactly. She's given permission. Exactly. Essentially. A couple of other cinematic shows, the vampire diaries is a really, really prominent show about vampires. Yeah. And I think this really sets the stones for that. They cannot go in the sun without a ring made of lapis lazuli. I or, like that weird. <laughs> um, it is a blue stone. They have mind control. They can compel people to forget things, to do things, whatever. Garlic has no effect on them. Neither do mirrors, religious signs. They don't have coffins as well. Vervain is bad for them, mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, and they still drink blood, but they do have a cure for vampirism at one point in the show as well as they can be turned into a vampire simply by drinking the blood of a vampire and then dying. Oh. So the bite has nothing to do with the turn. And they do live off of blood, but if they don't have blood, they won't die. They will just kind of freeze to death almost. Oh, gosh. They will, uh, they'll just kind of dehydrate. Like, like wither away kind of? Except they will never, like if you give a hundred-year-old vampire who has not had blood for a hundred years, 
blood, yeah, they will come back to life. Oh, so he'll be fine. Okay, I yeah. Got you. So uh, they, they do that usually if there's like a bad vampire, but they don't want to kill them. Like, there's a lot of like mythology in this story. Yeah. They can also procreate on rare occasions. Uh, the vampire Caroline at one point has twins, but she does not conceive them. It is a witch, witch twins of a dead witch who then forces her children to go out of her women into her Caroline. It's a very weird story plotline, but hmm. that is twins. Yes, that is something different as well. True Blood is also kind of a pinnacle vampire vampire TV show. I've never seen it. I had to ask my parents. I've for heard some of help Blue Blood, but not not yeah. True Blood. They can go into the sun on some occasions i think some of them can some of them can't they also have a mind control they do sleep in coffins oh, there we go Brand come back mirrors have no religious signs have no effect on them they do have superpowers like speed strength and flight oh that's new so the bat essentially <gasps> oh they can die by wooden bullets or stakes in the heart as well as the vampire diaries one stakes in the heart wooden bullets fire decapitation pulling the heart out mm-hmm what we do in the shadows are the stereotypical vampires like Dracula. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, again, um, very similar to Dracula. We see them in Penny Dreadful as well. Dracula is the main focus of Penny Dreadful. They are disgusting vampires, though. They are not <laughs> your sexualized vampire, which we will get to in a second. We see them in Sesame Street. Yes, yeah, so gets on Sesame Street. It's a Count Von Count, and he's purple, and he has very large eyebrows, and he has a Transylvanian accent that they really um, overplay, and similar to, I guess, the kids' animated Hotel Transylvania, he's not a scary guy. Um, yeah. He's, he's just a fun-loving vampire. And one last one that we're going to discuss in the cinematic section here is the American Horror Story Hotel is really interesting and kind of is a play off of those older mythological vampires uh, rather than Dracula, which I okay. think a lot of vampires nowadays are based from Dracula and Lord Ruthven and Nosferatu. This one is actually based off of Elizabeth Bathory, who oh. we discussed in the last episode, the Blood Countess. She was from Hungary? Correct? She was from Hungary, okay. yes. Yep. And she killed upward of 650 girls and bathed in their blood. Yeah. Though she didn't ingest it, she is a inspiration to lots of different authors' works, including Bram Stoker for Dracula. And he was also inspired by Vlad the Impaler as well. Getting the name Dracula from Vlad's name, Dragula, which meant oh. little dragon. Oh no, Little Dragon. So American Horror Story Hotel has the Countess, and her name is also Elizabeth. She cuts, does not bite. So she has really long nails and cuts people to drink their blood. Interesting. And is immortal, but can die in more, uh, normal ways. So basically she says at one point, I'm immortal, but don't be stupid. Like you can die. Okay. And she is stronger than most people. So at one point she is shot a bunch and she does survive because she is stronger. She can turn other people and lives off of blood. The most important part of this is even though there's no non-stereotypical vampire qualities, she is extremely, extremely sexualized mm. in this. She feeds on these people basically while having sex with them. <laughs> so she'll have sex with them, slice their throat, continue to have sex with them while drinking their blood. And like climax as she is done. 
essentially. And that's really interesting because what we're going to talk about next is this idea that vampires are sexualized. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, the vampire began to lose some of the folklore and legend legacy. And though they were still scary, they also became sexy as well. So the work of creative fiction authors proved a major makeover for the vampire. Varney, the vampire, was a popular Victorian serial, and it was the first to popularize this, quote, vampire's kiss. Quote from the story is, with a plunge, he seizes her neck in his fang-like teeth. This idea of biting at the neck Mm -hmm. is now popularized because it is romantic. It's sexual. Mm -hmm. Why are they so popular? Why are they popular, and why is sex appeal attributed to them? Is it this bad boy complex? Is it that sex sells? Why are vampires sexualized in this way? Because it goes back to the succubus and the incubus mm-hmm. in Mesopotamian mythology about that vampire seducing people. Yeah. It's going back, like you said, playing on the the gen- the gender roles almost. Um, and I guess you have in different films, different genders holding the power, so to speak. But in terms of why does sex appeal, why is that necessary for the vampire genre? I think I'm going to decide with, I think it's personally that sex sells. Like I think people have read these novels. They know by now what a vampire is. They need to put a new spin on it so it can last for years longer. And I think the spin they took is to sexualize them. Generally the same type of story without a vampire, Mm -hmm. you get kind of a romance. So let's look at this again. Twilight. There we go. Oh, Twilight is one of the biggest franchises of of it's insane how, of ever, how of big it is. literature right yeah. it's huge and this book is huge in itself but now take away the vampires and guess what you have it's a romance novel 50 shades of gray yeah and even though that's an even bigger franchise <laughs> it seems like the vampires sell uh-huh. but the sex sells more yeah so then let's put it together and create something called true blood mm-hmm. where we have vampires and extreme mature rated sex scenes and you have a hit tv show exactly you make millions and millions of dollars and continue to film so many episodes because it's ultimately what people want and what they've come to expect now i think about this the movie twilight and you don't have robert pattinson and taylor lautner play your two male leads like they didn't play on kind of like the big tough macho i have the six pack it wouldn't sell yeah as as much i that's my personal opinion Look at the Vampire Diaries. They don't have the ugly people yeah. playing <laughs> no, that's the vampires. A, that's a, yeah. They have these really sexy men mm-hmm. and with dark vampires. And dark hair dark. and like piercing blue eyes and like pretty pale skin. That's like what women look for, right? That's like the stereotypical of like tall, dark, dark and, and mysterious handsome. and yeah. handsome. Like, bitch, you're looking for a forest. <laughs> like, if <laughs> you ain't gonna find go that. take a hike honey <laughs> you're looking for a tree that's what yeah. you're looking for yeah but no they want to make this sexy because you i think they also want you to empathize oh yeah i i think with the vampire they don't want you to be afraid they don't want you to be terrified they kind of want you to feel bad like oh like they they didn't really have a choice like they were like born this way and you should feel bad that they have to do this to yeah. live have you read carmilla oh yeah i i love that it's a female. Yes. One. Is she lesbian? Is that, I've read that in a. Yes. The main speculation. And when I read it as a class, we discussed that. And 
I think we came to a conclusion together. That's that's what we personally believe. There's also this really cool mini TV series. I'm not sure if it's on Netflix, but it's like a video diaries, kind of like a YouTube. And it's, I think, Carmilla and kind of like her roommate. And you see it kind of unfold in that kind of... I don't know. I personally haven't watched it. I know people who have and they loved yeah. it. So if you want a little bit more clarification on the what's going on in Carmilla, I think that could help the under, like the understanding. The idea that if she's written similarly to these sexualized vampires yeah. here and the fact that she can be read as a lesbian mm-hmm. vampire and also just in is a woman vampire yeah. in general. Like we have these roles that are you know, sexualized in other ways. Women vampires are said to be sexy. And, you know, we have the Countess from uh, American Horror Story Hotel, played by Lady Gaga. (laughs) Like, she is a sexualized character. Mm -hmm. She's played by a woman that a lot of people find attractive. Mm -hmm. And she's got a really nice ass. Like, (laughs) I wish I had her ass. She's sexualized in that way. We have uh, people who play Dracula, Mm-hmm. Normally, our heartthrobs of that yeah. day and age. Damon Salvatore from The Vampire Diaries. Uh, yeah, he's a perfect example. Are like, you kidding me? We have these characters that are just constantly sexualized. Mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting that this has become part of vampire literature. I think it's just expanding. I want to see a, a vampire adaptation played by actors and actresses who don't live up to I guess the beauty I guess standard that we have in these tall dark and handsome and see how well that would do in comparison to see what people are truly looking for if it's the vampire or if it's the sexy pill that would tell you what it was yes speaking of that I mentioned this a little earlier but Penny Dreadful iconic tv show I mean, I'm a sucker for anything Frankenstein and Frankenstein's in that. So of course I'm going to be lured to that. But the vampires in Penny Dreadful are disgusting. They are bald. Oh. They, they're basically Nosferatu. Okay. Okay. They're bald. They're skinny. They're gross. They got multiple teeth. Like they are disgusting. Yeah. And I mean, Dracula, I think he's not really revealed until the very, very end. You assume that he looks like the other gross ass vampires that are yeah, looking around. Exactly. And he's not. But that is one of the only shows that I've seen that sex appeal does not sell the vampire yeah. plotline. What would you say does sell it? Is it the twist at the end? Patty Lapone. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I mean, Patty Lapone is in there and she's freaking great. Yeah. I would say what sells it is the is the plot. You're from the very beginning going, what is this? Yeah, you're like... In general, the Dracula that we are familiar with is in this, but it is not until the very, very end. And he's also really not that attractive. It's very yeah. subjective. Where do you think this genre is going? What do you, What would you like to see? I know you already mentioned yeah. that you would like to see somebody who doesn't fit these stereotypes play vampires, but where do you think the next stop on this train is going? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I can't say for a fact I know where it's going, but one of the adaptations that I personally enjoyed the best was A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And I think that was just so different taking a woman and you just kind of throw in these like random things like she skateboards, you know, she's going after weird men. And I think I would like to see a mixing of the genres, taking a few different things and combining them with the vampires. And that is doing something different, not something like cliche. I I don't want to say that, but something new and fresh. 
I love murder mysteries. I want to see a murder mystery that involves a vampire. And I want it to be a logical murder mystery, but throw on some vampires. Ooh, like a vampire who is like a detective on his own case. Yeah. See, that, Ooh, that would be genius. That would be. I, I would watch that show. Here it is. There we go. You hear it first. You've heard it here first, folks. But from myths and legends derived from folklore, the vampire is nothing new to our culture or any cultures. And stories throughout antiquity have created a legacy for this creature. We may never fully understand what this creature is and why we are so entranced by them. We may never get the evidence that we need to prove or disprove the existence of these bloodthirsty legends. The vampire craze will be as immortal as them themselves, and their legacy lives on in our media and our literature, which has made the vampire a pop culture icon that is simply timeless. That's it for this episode, and join us in two weeks for another fantastic episode. And until then, this is Oddballers. Thanks so much for listening. Oddballers is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by me, Elizabeth Wires. This podcast will dive deep into popular culture and media to explore that weird truth behind all topics odd and interesting and try to understand why humans are so fascinated with the biggest trends, tales, and oddities of this world. So join us for a new topic each month to learn a little something odd about this world that we inhabit. Welcome to Oddballers.